again, everybody. And we are in the second week of uh, a new series of messages. We're looking at our gospel foundations. We're going to work our way through the gospels. And right now, we're, we just began the book of John last week. Just looked at the very beginning of that. So we're going to continue on through John today. Our goal here is to examine the Gospels because they really form the foundation of our understanding of who Jesus is, what he came for, what it is that he wants to do in our lives, what he's inviting us into. We want to make sure we're going back to that, that source of the information we have about Jesus himself and what he did and said. Last week, we took a good look at Jesus from the beginning of time, as John describes him, that he was there in the beginning. And we want to open our eyes to who he is, be aware of our creator all around us when we experience this world. We recognize this this child whose birth we just celebrated as Christmas is the creator of all things. And there's, there's joy to be had in that and awe to be gained from that. If you'd like to catch up, you can listen to that message online. You can find it through Facebook or our website. So let's continue on in John today. We're going to read um, John 1, verses 6 through 8 to start things off. So if you'd like to open up a Bible and follow along, I invite you to do that. Um, once again, chapter 1 in John, we're going to begin in verse 6. We read here, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And I just want to pause there and briefly highlight John. Now, this is not John who authored this gospel. This is, of course, John the Baptist that he's referring to. We're going to read more about John a little bit later. Um, But just to briefly remind us, this is Jesus' cousin who God chose for a special role, to be a witness to Jesus. And as I thought about that, I thought about the fact that we're all called to be witnesses to Christ. But John had a unique role in the way that he pointed to people, to Jesus, before Jesus was even presented publicly. He, he started declaring the presence of Jesus even as in, in his mother's womb when he leapt as Mary came into his presence. We today walk by faith in the resurrection that happened some 2,000 years ago, inviting people to accept Jesus for what he did. John called people to follow Jesus before any of that happened. He walked by faith that Jesus was going to do something great. And there was something special about his witness, I think. But as I said, we'll come back to John the Baptist a little bit more. I want to read on this morning as we dig into this message. So let's go back now to um, verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And I want to stop there. This is where John first introduces us to the problem Jesus came to address. He reminds us again who Jesus is. He's the true light that gives light to everyone. The world was made through him. He is the creator. He has this incredibly significant role in the life and history of the world. And he was coming into this world 
coming to that which was his own. Jesus had every right to claim all humanity and all existence as belonging to him. And yet, the world did not receive him and did not recognize him. And this really gets to the essence of sin. We often talk about sin in terms of behaviors and morality, doing what's right and wrong according to God's will, and that certainly is part of understanding what sin is. As our creator, God has designed us to thrive when we live according to what he has commanded, according to his will, what he has defined as morally good. We can look to Genesis at the, at the commitment of the very first sin by Adam and Eve to see how they disobeyed God's command. So let's take a look at that. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis this morning. It's Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. We read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We read a little bit earlier in Genesis 2 that there were these two trees in the center of the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the one command that they were given is don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3, we read how Adam and Eve disobeyed that command. And this is the moment we refer to now as the fall. The fall of mankind, the fall of all creation into sin. This is a state of darkness that John refers to. when He said that there was darkness into the world. The sinfulness of mankind affects every interaction between God and man. It affects our interactions between one another. It affects the very world we live in as we disobey God's basic command to to care for the world. So even before he said, don't eat from this tree, God said, God commanded mankind to be his stewards over this earth. Just take a look back at Genesis 2 verse 15. I'm sorry, that's not the passage I wanted, sorry. I added that in, but let's go to Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This was God's basic instructions to mankind to care for his earth. And as we sin against God and sin against each other, we disobey even that command as we selfishly take from what God provided us rather than caring for it as his stewards. But let's take a closer look at the roots of sin today. In order to truly understand sin, we need to go a little deeper than simply whether or not we did what was right or wrong. There's something underlying the kinds of choices that we make the motivations that lead us to disobey God and the the state of our hearts and minds in those moments when when we choose a life of sin or we make sinful choices. Consider again what John wrote. He said that the light was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, right in front of the people he created. Right in front of the people that God called and set apart for his purposes, and yet they did not recognize him. And they didn't receive him. There was something broken in their connection to him. Something broken between mankind and their creator. There's something that clouds our judgment and our spiritual awareness of who God is and what he wants. And so we can examine this fall in Genesis chapter 3 and see what God's word tells us about the state of mankind that led to this first act of disobedience. We'll see in here some roots that are common to all of us when we make sinful choices. So let's go to chapter 3 in Genesis. We'll start with the first three verses of that chapter. Many of us are probably familiar with the story. We'll take a close look at it today. It says that the serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now in this moment, the serpent comes and casts some doubt. He tries to to cause Eve to question God's command. Did God really say this? But he twists the command, doesn't he? He says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the fruit in the garden, right? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. That's what he asked her. And Eve responds as someone who, who understands God, knows God. She, gave, she said, no, this is what he told us. We can't eat from this one tree, otherwise we would surely die. But in that moment, the serpent casts some doubt. He creates the opportunity for Eve to question. Do I, did God really say that? And then he goes on. He pushes a little bit further. Verse 4, he says, You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You will know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the serpent tells Eve that God lied to them, that he is not truthful, that he's, in fact, holding something back from you, this good thing. You see this good thing that you could have? God doesn't want you to have it, is what he says. He drove a wedge between God and mankind in that moment. Caused both Adam and Eve, we'll, think, we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but caused them to question their trust in the Lord. Is he really providing all for weight? Is he holding something back from us that, that would make us even better than we are right now? So where Eve once trusted God and saw that fruit on that tree as something to stay away from, she now saw it as something desirable, something that would be good to eat 
And that would provide her with something that she now wanted. She wanted this wisdom, the wisdom of God. But that wasn't a desire that existed before this moment. Before now, she knew God would give her all she wanted. That's all she needed to believe in. That's all she needed to know. God would provide for her life. But now she believed God was holding something back from her, something valuable. And they would need to take it for themselves. And as I said, both Adam and Eve made the decision. The Bible tells us that the serpent was speaking to Eve and telling her those things. But we also see that Adam was right there. He didn't argue. He didn't make a fuss. He just went along with it. So clearly, he, he saw that desire as well. He saw that this is something that we should do. And in eating that fruit, something in Adam and Eve changed from that moment on. The Bible says that their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. Now, did they not know they were naked before? I think they did. That's not what this statement is saying. They were aware they weren't wearing clothes up until that point. They had no need for clothes. They wouldn't even have, probably never even crossed their mind. But now their eyes were opened. And you can imagine the kinds of thoughts that maybe entered their mind as they were exposed now to the knowledge of good and evil that caused them to say, whoa, there is something wrong with us being naked. And they became ashamed. This new awareness of their nakedness caused them to want to cover it up and hide it. That's what that statement is saying. They were now experiencing a new kind of awareness from the, of the world that God never intended for them. And he never intended it for their own good, for their own benefit. It's important to understand that God provided everything that mankind could ever need and want for a full and prosperous life. But now, with this new, quote, wisdom as the serpent called it, and awareness they gained, they were discovering things that would have negative consequences on them for their entire lives, for the lives of their descendants, and for for every other life in the world. This is what God was preventing from them, preserving them from. You may also notice they didn't immediately die when they ate this fruit. But that doesn't mean that God was lying to them because they would now experience a different kind of dying. First of all, they would be cut off from the tree of life that they previously had free access to and access to the benefits of that fruit, whatever it gave to their lives, they no longer had. They would now suffer physical, mental, and emotional hardship that comes from living in a broken world We can read a little bit about that when God tells them about how the world is cursed now. If we jump to Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your, your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
And whenever I read that, I just think, I wonder how, what was the world like before this moment? And what happened? And what does our sin do to our very environment that causes this, this hardship, this toil, and the pain and suffering that go with it? But that's part of the death that they now experience, the hardship of living in a fallen world. They were separated from God and from his life-sustaining and life-fulfillment that comes from an intimate connection with him. There's a spiritual death that occurs. So no, God was not lying or withholding good things from them when he told them not to eat of that tree. But this is the kind of lie we hear in our own hearts and minds that leads us into sin at times. The kind of thinking that says, I'm lacking some good thing. Perhaps that God is withholding it from me or other people are keeping me from it or taking it from me. We believe there's something that we need to have. Or maybe need is too, too strong of a word sometimes. Sometimes we, we, we have this desire to be fulfilled or to be soothed or, or to fill some void in our lives. And, and we don't know where we're going to get it and we have to go out and take it. In all kinds of situations, we have a sense that we are lacking something and we need to go get it for ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves because nobody else will. And that's the underlying feeling or experience that's often going on that leads us into sin. But it also leads us to focus more and more on ourselves. We see the world as a place with limited supply of good things that we need in our lives. And I'm not just talking about material things. In fact, the core desires are often not for material things. They're, they're things that are often more valuable. Things like a sense of belonging, a desire to be loved, desire to have a meaningful purpose, or to be listened to, to, to be included, not left out. These are the things that are at the root, the things that are in our hearts and minds that are speaking to us and saying, you do, you're lacking. There's something lacking, and you need to go after it. And they often lead us into sinful choices because we feel that they are lacking or we, and we feel that we can't get them anywhere unless we fight for them for ourselves. We look around and we see that other people have what we want. Why can't I have it? The kind of thinking that's going on here is, called, is often called a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality assumes that whatever good exists in the world is rare and hard to find and difficult to keep. That we must compete with others to get the things that we need for ourselves. And interestingly, this, this mentality is really the basis of the worldview that a lot of people live within today. A worldview that says there is no God. If the world is a closed system of resources, then all forms of life in it must compete with one another to see who survives the best. That's basically the theory of evolution right there. Right? 
Only the best, the most competitive will survive. And the more advanced forms of life will beat out the others for those limited resources. And you have to compete for love because there's not enough. Yeah. And that's really, those are the, really the resources we need to think about. Compete for love, complete for meaning, complete for purpose because there's not enough. If I don't prove myself to be better than everyone else, well, then I'm going to be left behind. If I don't make myself stand out, if I don't show everyone that I am worth loving, then I'm going to be left out. If I'm left out, it's hopeless for me because... Right, well, that's true. That's a good point. Some people stop trying to compete. They're like, well, forget it, give up. But those are the kinds of things that are often going on that lead us into this sinful place. Thinking this way leads us to feel, like I said, that we need to compete for everything. We need to stand up for ourselves. We need to take what we want. And all of this is driven by the assumption that we need to take care of ourselves first and foremost. It's about me standing up for myself. And you see that everywhere, don't we? That's, that's the message that's often communicated in our world. It's a message that echoes back to that message the serpent gave to Eve. That you're being that you will not you're being withheld from something good. And you can see how all this turns us inward to ourselves. It separates you from God and from other people. It leaves you actually alone. Like you're seeking belonging, you're seeking meaning and purpose, but you actually end up being more and more isolated and alone because you're just focused on yourself and getting for yourself what you need. And you can imagine, can't you, how from that moment when Adam and Eve first sinned, and separated themselves from God up until the moment when Jesus, the very word of God, came into the world, how much sin has affected everything and everyone in this world. How much more self-focused, how much more distance from God mankind had become. So this is how it is that when Jesus came, the world did not recognize him and did not see him. Because the world has now believed that they have to get what they want for themselves. That God will not provide for them. That leads to all kinds of different thoughts about how things work in this world. This is the setting for the gospel. A world made with a creator's intent, with good purpose in mind, but a world in which every person, you and I included, have lost sight of him in his loving intent. Where we have all lived as though we are alone and in need of fending for ourselves in a world that is limited and set against us. We may not believe that all the time. As Christians, we, we have reached a different point of life, but we, we all have those thoughts every now and then. That we must take care of ourselves. But God knows this is not the truth. This is where the good news of the gospel starts to shine through. God knows that these are lies of Satan that people have believed. 
And he will not allow Satan and darkness to have the final say. As we read last week, John wrote that the light shines in the darkness. Jesus came into this world knowing what state it was in. He knew that people wouldn't recognize him. He knew what it would be like. He knows all about the sin and separation of man. So he was not surprised by any of it, and yet he still came. He came with a purpose to provide restoration and healing and hope. He came to open our eyes to see him and to know him and invited us to receive him once again. Let's read John one twelve. It's our final verse for today to bring our focus back into the good news of the gospel. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. He gave people the right to become children of God. This is what God intended for mankind from the start. This is what he created us to be. And the gospel is about restoring us to that right relationship with him once again, opening our eyes, helping us to see and to know our creator as he truly is, helping us to see the truth of this world that he made and how it is that we can live with him and inviting us back into his presence. This is something we must learn to see and to receive. As Christians, we celebrate the fact that God has opened our eyes to know him, to see him and to receive him. Knowing him and living as his children is really the key to overcoming the power of sinful desire in our lives to stepping back out into that light and letting that light fill us again. Because it's when we recognize him and receive him that we learn to trust him again. We learn that he is trustworthy. He is a good heavenly father full of abundant love and provision. And that because of him, we truly lack nothing that we need in this world. In him, we belong to him and we belong to all the brothers and sisters he surrounds us with. In him, our lives have meaning and purpose. We're not in competition with others. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We are chosen and loved just as we are by the Lord himself. We are valued as meaningful into his kingdom, all of us. He doesn't look at some of us and say, you are good, and others and say, you are not. He created each and every one of us with love and meaning and value and purpose. We don't have to compete with one another for that. His love and his resources are abundant for all of us. In him, there is no lack of love, There's no lack of comfort, of belonging. There's no lack of opportunity or healing or restoration. There's no lack of joyness, joy and fullness of life in him. Let's take a look at one more passage this morning. Turn over to Ephesians 1, chapters 3 through 10, where Paul speaks about the abundant provision of God. 
This is the truth of what it means to live in this world when we know and we receive the word of God. Ephesians 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 10. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us and the one he loves. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. And there's words that Paul uses in here, lavishing on us, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There's, he has destined us before the creation of the world to be made holy and blameless in his sight. There is a work that he does in and through us that doesn't change because of our choices, but because of God's pleasure and will. He, he pours out his grace. He pours out in his love. He invites us into his family and gives us everything that we could possibly need. This is the truth of who God is. In him, there is an abundance of all things. In him, as children of God, when we receive him, we are predestined to receive his blessings in the full. In him, there is an abundance of all good things. And so let's remember as we embrace the good news of the gospel who this God is and how he loves us and desires to give himself to us. May we continue to seek him, to know him. May we receive him fully into our lives day after day, continuing to invite him in so that we may know the abundance of his love. And let the truth of who he is be our guide so that we know that there is nothing that we are lacking. That all those things we desire, we know we have in Christ because of his love and provision. Let's give thanks to the abundant love of the Lord as we praise him with our, song, our final song today. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to help us see you, and we pray that you would continue to open people's eyes. If there is any way that we can help serve you, Lord, to help people see you and know you and receive you, we ask that you work through us, Father. You know each of our hearts, and you know the longings that we have, Lord, and you know where we can be led astray by those desires. I pray that you would speak to each of us in new ways as we continue to go forward about how you fulfill our desires, that we can turn to you. Give us the strength to see you and to know you and to receive you in those moments, that we can glorify you and that we can know of your goodness and your abundance to the full. We ask for your blessing on this church family, Lord, as we continue to seek you 
and as we receive you into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.